Hello and welcome to Fans, the podcast hosted by me, Sachin Akrani, in which I speak to people I like, find interesting or both about being football fans. So yes, Fans is back for a new series, Series 4, and it's very much a case of being back with a bang, given I'm joined for this episode to talk all things Tranmere Rovers by the brilliant BBC commentator, Steve Wilson. Steve, how are you? Hello. Well, Sachin, I'm very, I'm very flattered to be guest number one in your new series. Um, for a start off, um, brilliant is very kind. Thank you very much as well. Um, yeah, hi, I'm very well. Thank you very much. Been looking forward to um, being able to get my teeth into the super tranny. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm glad to have you on. Yeah, as we were saying just before start recording. Um, yeah, this series four, I call it grandly a series. I mean, these things aren't getting commissioned. You know, so <laughs> it's just me. Whenever I can be bothered to start up again and do these things, I'm taking a couple of months off over Christmas and stuff. But now I've been keen to get you on a while to talk about Chan Mirror Club. Um, We'll come on to this more for almost geographic reasons and footballing reasons. Mm. I'm really fascinated by in terms of what it means to be a fan of theirs. But there's a yeah, and also there's been some some big highs and some big lows in in the period you supported them. So there's a lot, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, lot to get through. A 12 month period specifically as well, which I know full well, which was incredible. There's some iconic results in there. So we'll we'll get on to all of that um, shortly. Before we do, I do want to talk about your your career really as a commentator, obviously for the BBC and for others. Uh, first of all. Um, I once described you as the uh, the blur to Guy Mowbray's Oasis. Um, Did you? <laughs> it, was in a, it was in a piece comparing the BBC and ITV's pundits and commentators for the 2018 World Cup. I gave you okay. and Guy gave you both an eight out of ten. You're both doing outstanding work at that stage in the tournament. Uh, but yeah, just wondering what you because I can see from where you're sitting, you're a big music fan. You've got some lovely music artwork behind you. I, I, so I am. Yeah. I um, make being called uh, the blur to guy Mowbray's Oasis. I'd, I'd probably I'd probably been even more pleased if you'd said the pulp to Guy Mowbray's Oasis. But um but yeah uh, well um <laughs> you know well that's that's very kind of you. Yes <laughs> I, I like my music. And in a way, you know, it's sort of um, one of the questions I'm often asked because I suppose I've been doing this long enough now that I've become one of those people that, you know, the the next generation, if you like, sort of mm. go to to kind of say, like, you know, how did you get in? Have you got any words of wisdom and stuff? And um, so that's something that happens. It, it, that's quite flattering, too, in a way, really, that, um, you know, you're asked that kind of thing. And and. And music and football kind of very much went together for me in in my teens and in that they were basically the only two things I was actually interested in. Yeah, and yeah. When, when, when I went to university, um, I was born and brought up in Birkenhead and my mum and dad live within about a mile and a half of Tramia's Grand Prenton Park. And I could literally see the glow of the floodlights from my bedroom window as a young kid. Um, and... Um, I made the mistake at 18 of going off to university to go and study hotel and catering management in Guildford. I really it's totally beyond me as to why, <laughs> other than I was being a bit of a dick, frankly, Sachin. you know, it was just kind of most of my mates were kind of doing law or languages or English or whatever. Yeah. And I just sort of thought I'm going to do something completely different. Um, it was an act of rebellion and as well as stupidity, I suppose. Quite a random um, part of the world as well, Guildford. That's sort of well, it. Why have I got that completely? Yeah, it's so, no, sorry, sorry, sorry University. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but yeah. but but it was it was really because so few places. There were only about four or five places that that actually did that course. Mm. So I applied to them all, and and Guildford, um, I got into. 
and there's nothing wrong with the course. You know, I'm not criticizing the course one bit. I just discovered when I started it that I didn't really have any interest in it. And um, I managed to last almost a year and a half. But the one thing I did take away from Guildford was that Surrey University had a, had a radio station. And kind of from week two or three of the first term, I got involved in it playing records playing my own music you know very indulgent playing my own kind of records as a sort of late night very very poor man's John Peel and um and so at least I came away from Surrey University knowing how to what they call drive the desk which is use the faders the buttons and all the rest of it and um anyway I then I, to cut a long story short, I then went back to Liverpool University and did English language and literature, which is probably what I should have done in the first place. And um, and whilst I was there, I, I loved that course and, and did reasonably well at it. Whilst I was there, um, got involved in the student newspaper. And there were three of us involved in that, in producing what was basically all the, all the sporting content and the sporting content was football content. Um, and they needed somebody to do Tramias because uh, a guy called David Anderson, who you'll know from the from the Mirror, yeah, I know him um, well. Yeah, Dave, yeah, yeah, yeah he, Dave, Dave, big boxing guy as well. Comes yeah, boxing the Mirror. Dave, yeah. uh, Dave, Dave did um, did did the uh, Liverpool stuff, as I remember. Mm. Mike Hughes, who's now the sports editor of Radio Merseyside, mm. did the Everton stuff, and Tramia were kind of the third team, obviously on the patch. And um, I was only too happy to get yeah. involved in contributing the odd bit about Tramia. So that, I suppose, was unbeknownst to me at the time, my first steps into A, broadcasting and B, journalism, both in a student context and, and stood me in good stead later on. Excellent. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, I know Dave really well. I know more, in a way, more from the boxing beat because I cover a bit of boxing as well than yeah. I do from football. But he's a yeah, top, top guy, a big Liverpool fan as well, like, like myself. He's, he's, he's right across Leeds United at the moment. That seems to be his patch. I saw him in the other week. Yeah. yeah. I should say, the reason I compared, I called you Blur and Guy Mowbray Oasis, I wasn't suggesting there's a rivalry between you two. There might be, but it's a, it was a compliment because I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a very much a child of the Britpop era and it was yeah. kind of... So it was a compliment to say you're both kind of the commentary equivalent of two of my favourite bands growing up. And I call Guy, I, I linked Oasis to Guy because I just feel like he's a bit more growly, I feel, in his commentary. Right, a bit, okay. A bit more okay. Liam Gallagher, I don't know. That might okay, be, maybe. I mean, you know, it's, 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 one of those, it's one of those strange things is that, you know, I mean, yes, there is a rivalry, I suppose, to a certain extent, because ultimately there's only so many cup finals and stuff, yeah. um, you know, to sort of to, to pass around. So... There's an element of that, I guess, but actually, um, it, the, the, it's very true. I think to say that you know, whilst there are more than there used to be, there are still quite a small number of football commentators on the television. Mm. And um, you know, one thing that we all have in common is you know just actually how how scary it can be to pick up a microphone when mm. there's 45 minutes ahead of you and you have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah. And um, I say scary. I mean, you obviously get used to it, but um, when I joined BBC TV from Five Live, John Motson said to me, and he was a source of good advice about a number of things. And he said, he said, you know, he, he said he felt the role was kind of undervalued in 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 the BBC and maybe elsewhere. Um, in that, um, an awful lot of effort goes into the studio and getting the right pundits and you know the scripting and all the rest of it and the where the studio is and how it looks. And then it's just kind of like, oh, and now it's over to X, you know, with 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 the next 45 minutes. Um, 
of, of completely unscripted broadcasting, you know, and that probably, um, I think Motti said something like it's the, it's, it's the longest unscripted piece of broadcasting anybody's ever likely to do, you That's know, true. Yeah, um, yeah. and you, it. and you, you have to try and kind of be prepared for all eventualities. He also said, he also said, which is, which is, uh, you know, perhaps has some grain of truth in it as well. He said 90% of the effort and 90% of the money goes into the 10% of the program that nobody watches. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, look, I, I'm genuinely, I mean, I, just touching on that, I, I'm sort of almost in awe of you guys. As someone who covered, I do it less so now as I've got older, but for a good sort of 10 years, I, I, I covered games regularly for The Guardian. And I find sort of covering games for a newspaper quite difficult. But for most of that, you're sort of you're just behind your laptop. And if you make a mistake, you can correct it and you've got rewrite. Doing it live, I just think is absolutely extraordinary. And, and the fact that likes of yourself and Guy and so many others, you know, Connor McNamara, Darren Fletcher, Bill Leslie, Rob Hawthorne, Clive Tilsey, all of you guys, not only not trip over your words more and make mistakes, but are so sort of lyrical and coherent with what you say, I think is, is absolutely phenomenal. I really genuinely don't think there's enough wider appreciation of what you do. And one aspect of your job, I, I think, isn't really spoken about at all, but I always think is really, I'm fascinated, A, by how you go about it, and B, how consistently you're so good at it, is the sort of half-time, full-time summaries. So when what I mean by that is when the players are walking off the pitch at half-time, and it's, let's say it's 2-2 between yeah. Manchester United and Arsenal, and you're, you're just sort of in sort of, 30 seconds wrapping up that half, talking about what happened, summing up the motion of it. I always wonder how you're doing, how you've done that, because it's always very coherent. It's a lovely little neat summary of what's just happened in the 45 minutes we've seen. But you're also reporting on the game as it goes live. So I'm sort of curious, are you sort of scribbling notes as you go along? Are you just making a mental note? What's going on? What are you going to no. say? That whistle blows. Um, no, I mean, I don't make notes during the game because basically because I don't really have enough hands, to be honest. No, I mean, everyone, yes. everyone yeah. does the logistics of a commentary slightly differently. But, but you know, we do use handheld lip mics. So that takes out one hand for a start mm. off. And I'm generally holding a piece of paper with a sort of I, I, I try to create um, before kickoff. Once I've got the team news, I will write down. I've got a sheet of you know stats and notes and everything for each team, but I'll just hand write down in formation how I think the two teams are going to line up, so that um, you know when when the ball is in the left back position you're assuming and you have in front of me, well, the left back of whoever is him, uh, it should be him. And, and anyway, that's just how I do it. So I don't have a spare hand. What people I think don't appreciate that goes on in commentary, because why would they appreciate it or care really, is that there's a dialogue going on between the commentator and the match director mm -hmm. during the game. So as a commentator, you can hear various things in your ears, your own voice, obviously, um, the crowd effects is is another one. These days, you can hear the video assistant referee if it's a Premier League game. Um, you can hear also the match director, and probably you will have a, a line to your base as well. So in my case, the BBC Sport office at Salford. So you might have four or five things going on in your headphones at the same time. They're all people you can you can hear from. You can also speak to the director. So we have a button called a lazy. You press the lazy and you will say, please, can you give me a, if, if I've just suddenly thought of something which I think is creative or interesting or whatever about a particular player or manager, I can request a shot of, of that person. Oh, right, and, okay. and they'll do what they call yeah. a cutaway, which is a close up shot of said player, manager, whatever, and I can deliver my little line. So not long before half-time and full-time, the director will generally lead this, and he'll say, 
Um, you know, it's a, it's a one-all draw. It's, you know, Liverpool versus Brentford or whatever. Um, he'll, he'll say, Steve, I'll give you, um, I'll give you Ivan Tony, Sadio Mane and Jurgen Klopp on the whistle. So that gives me a couple of minutes to think about what I want to wow. say. In, in, in that 30 seconds. So, oh, um, so, so that's basically how that mm. works. So that, so that the words tie in with the pictures, obviously, but yeah. um, I, I think that people, people, you know, if they give it any thought, I don't know if they do or not kind of imagine that you're just sort of commentating into this bubble, into a sort of vacuum. Um, but in fact, you know, it's completely the opposite. There are conversations going on all the time that you may be involved in or just listening in on some of which don't particularly you know, pertain to you, but some of which it's absolutely vital that you hear. So um, you're trying to spin plates, really, I suppose, yeah, yeah. you know. Oh, that's fascinating. That's really interesting. Um, we'll get to chat me very shortly. Final question about being a commentator. What is the strangest, weirdest place you've ever commentated from? Uh, in terms of oh. the ground, uh, just to give you sort of yeah. an example, what I mean, I once covered Eastleigh v Bolton in the FA Cup <laughs> in uh, January 2016, and I covered it from the away end because I didn't have a press box. <laughs> have you had any sort of really strange places you've had to perch yourself and you might I, um, I, I was actually at that Eastleigh versus oh, Bolton game the near, one covered in mud that nearly got called yeah, off yeah <laughs> that's right Neil, Neil Lennon was the Bolton manager yeah he was yeah. yeah 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 um I mean without any question the strangest place and I've been lucky to travel to sort of you know all kinds of places with tournaments but um and it's it's sort of uh it's relevant now because it's the African Nations Cup at the mm. moment but in 2002 the BBC bought the African Nations Cup, which was being held in Mali. And, um, you know, they absolutely did it right. I mean, the the BBC, the way the BBC covered that tournament was fantastic. We had um, two commentary teams, um, reporters, everything. We were all out in Mali. Um, Off-tube commentary, which is when you're not at the game and you're sitting in a production somewhere, that that is sort of the way things are often done now, Mm -hmm. particularly with covid and, you know, I don't think it's any great secret to people that at the moment, you know, the commentary teams for, for, for the current African Nations Cup aren't in Cameroon. Mm. We were in Mali and there was a quarterfinal in a town called Kai, K-A-Y-E-S, which has happened to be not, not entirely uh, unrelated to the fact that the president of Mali at the time was born there. So when they were looking for venues, um, he, I would imagine, sort of made sure that his hometown was on the list therefore got a sort of new airstrip a hotel or whatever and um a, a stadium and if you look in the in the um you know let's go whatever it is guide to mali you'll find it's reputed to kai is reputed to be africa's hottest town and um anyway it was mali versus south africa in the quarterfinal and if i remember right it kicked off about five o'clock in the evening and um Mali, uh, you, you couldn't, there were no roads to Kai, really. Um, you kind of have to fly there or, or you know, go in a four by four convoy across the Sahara. So um, the tournament organizers had borrowed a plane from Air Armenia to, 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 I know, to, to basically to get the sort of few media that there were around the country, you know, in the, in the bits that you couldn't drive. So, so we sort of gleefully got onto the plane that Air Armenia didn't want and, um, and uh, flew to Kai. And um, 
I, I, we were in the only shade in the stadium, which is like a little bowl, probably held 15, 20,000 people um, with a small roof. We're under that roof. And if I remember rightly, uh, Nick Bushell, who is a guy who I've worked with for many years as a, as a producer, kind of got his thermometer out. And it was about 110 in the shade wow. at kickoff. And, uh, you know, unsurprisingly, Marley won <laughs> as, as South Africa kind of melted. came out and melted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. So, that, so that, was, that was unquestionably the, um, the weirdest place. And actually, if I can just digress slightly, on the way yeah. back, you know, we were on this sort of plane provided by the tournament organisers, as I say. So we, we got on this bus to get back to the airport and what we realized is that this plane had done a couple of shuttle journeys there and back um, to get people to the game. So it had made perhaps two trips, maybe three trips to Kai from Bamako, the capital, but it was only making one back. <laughs> so there was a bit of a mad rush yeah, to I sort of, imagine. you know, you can imagine the barrier <laughs> yeah. moves and everybody just runs to this yeah, little yeah. plane, which only probably had about 40 or 50 seats on it. It was a propeller thing, you know, yeah. and, um, and um you know to my to my sort of shame i suppose but but um elbowed a granny but, out the way well <laughs> I, I don't think there were any grannies but but we did but we did we you know we did have one or two you know one particular guy who's pretty pretty big guy and yeah. so we're sort of sprinting across the tarmac and he's basically <laughs> he's basically shouting bbc <laughs> <laughs> and we got on it excellent and, um, I've never been I've never felt more guilty as we took off but but also <laughs> never felt more relieved really uh, fantastic that's excellent um brilliant right let's get on to Tranmere then um lots yeah. to talk about over the sort of period you've supported the club before we sort of go, get onto your memories and experiences I do want to as I said have a bit of a geography chat because I think Tranmere's mm. sort of location um as you mentioned earlier obviously Birkenhead is is quite fascinating and I think there's a, there's an outside view from from people that Tranmere are like the third team in Liverpool behind uh behind Liverpool and Everton mm. but I think that's actually a bit of a myth from a geographical point of view and as a yeah. as a Wirral boy born in the yeah. born is it in the Wirral on the Wirral I'm never sure how to describe well, it well well uh, I think I think people from there would generally say on the Wirral because oh, it's, it's because the bit of that sentence you're not saying is peninsula so yes, well, I was going it, to. Yeah. yeah, it's a geographical feature. It's a peninsula. Yeah. Well, do you want to? As I said, do you want yeah. to sort of bust this myth and just talk about the geography and why Tranmere yeah. isn't the third city in Liverpool? Yeah. It's not it, in Liverpool, is it? It's not in Liverpool. It's exactly, in Birkenhead. Yeah. It's in yeah. Birkenhead on the Wirral Peninsula, which is yeah. a geographical feature. So you'd say like on the Isle of Wight, on the Isle mm. of Man. Um, so on the Wirral Peninsula, um, Birkenhead and Wallasey are the main towns. Um, Rafael Benitez is. Uh, is a high profile resident yeah, of the Wirral yeah. Peninsula. Um, and it's on, the, it's on the south side, south bank of the River Mersey. Um, mm. And Liverpool, the city, is on the north bank of the River Mersey. So, um, so it is not part of the city of Liverpool. Um, having said that, obviously, in, in, in a football sense, um, you know, it is dominated by the two clubs on the other side of the river. Mm. And as the crow flies, you know, Anfield and Goodison are, are, are probably no more than about three or four miles away from, from Prenton Park. Um, and a lot of, certainly of my generation of Tranmere fans, because one of the key things about supporting Tranmere in the 70s and 80s was in those days, they used to play a, a large proportion of their home games on a Friday mm. night. And, and the reason for that was because it meant that people could go and watch Liverpool and Everton or Liverpool or Everton 
uh, as well on a Saturday. And they used to run a bus from, you could go to Prenton Park on a Saturday, get on a bus that would take you to Anfield or Goodison, whichever of the teams were playing at home. Um, so, you know, they've always realised, obviously, that they're in the, in the, in, in the, very much in the shadows of the two big clubs across the board. But, um, but you know, we are not from Liverpool. We are not mm. a Liverpool club. We're not the third club in the city of Liverpool. Mm. We, are, we are the only football league club on the World Peninsula. Yeah. <laughs> and um, our, our rival, you know, our, our sort of traditional rivals are Wrexham and Chester, not... Liverpool or Everton, mm. you know, that's obviously because playing Liverpool or Everton is something that only happens extremely rarely uh, and, and brings treasured memories, certainly with a famous game against Everton. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's very much um, Chester, Wrexham and, and strangely in more recent years, Forest Green Rovers get under our skin quite a lot as well. <laughs> well, I'm but, aware um, of the Forest. That's Green... nothing to do with geography. Yeah, yeah. I work with a Tranmere fan who seems to really hate Forest Green Rovers, and I'm sort of yes. about it. And I think it's a yeah, a modern yeah, a modern sort of rivalry. That's 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 very much modern rivalry. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but um, but you know, Tranmere have played Liverpool in Everton, and mm. um, and uh, you know, there are probably people who are kind of really split. I suppose when when that happens. And there are some people who are absolutely unequivocally Tranmere fans who would never dream of going to Goodison Park or Anfield. Mm. So did you grow up with a lot of Liverpool and Everton fans? Um, yes, of course. Oh, Will, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, my, my, my best friend as a kid was, uh, was a, a massive Everton fan. Um, I used to go, I've been to Goodison Park and Anfield as a, as a teenager. Once I was kind of deemed to be old enough to go, um, because you could, because you could watch Tranmere on a on a mm. Friday night, and then you could go and watch um, Liverpool and Everton. And um, I, I find, though, you know, as I sort of got older, and I obviously now watch a lot of Premier League football. Um, I the, the opportunity to watch Tranmere, firstly, is sort of you know pretty few and far between, unfortunately. And I also live in Sussex, so it's a long way. Um, and I don't get weekends off, so that makes it a bit more difficult. But um, but it is a fantastic antidote, as is any football at that level, actually. I find it personally a brilliant antidote to Premier League football, you know, which which I enjoy, but is such a kind of exalted bubble that, um, you know, I, I get an enormous amount of pleasure from going to watch um League One, League Two, non-league mm. football, which I don't get the opportunity to do that often. But if the opportunity is there, I'll generally take it. Yeah. Well, you're talking about the Friday night thing, you know, it's, it's something I'm aware of and it's, you know, an interesting, so I wouldn't say quirk of Tranmere's history, but an interesting element of it that you do, you know, they do play a lot of games on Friday so people mm. can watch less, them. Less so now because, um, because it was deemed to be a bit of an advantage, which to be fair, it kind of probably was because it, it was a rhythm of the week that Tranmere were used to and their opponents weren't. So, um, Friday night football is 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 not absolutely a thing of the past. They still get probably two or three home games on the Friday night, but nothing like as many as they used to. Oh, that's interesting. It was, what it was deemed as an advantage to them by their opponents, so it was kind of yeah, campaigned against. Yes, yes. I would have to check my facts on that, yeah. but as I understand it, I think it was felt that um, you know their home record was um, was helped by the fact that 
that, that they work for a slightly different rhythm, I suppose. Ah, right. Um, okay. I mean, you're talking about a time when, when you know, football was played at 7.30 on a Wednesday night and at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. Mm. Now, of course, you know, everybody's used to kicking off God knows when and, you know, any time. But um, certainly for whatever reason, Tranmere don't play on a Friday night at home anything like as frequently as they used to. Yeah. Well, your first ever Tranmere game was on a Friday night. It was yes. Friday, the 31st of January, 1975. Tranmere 3, Grimsby 1. Um, you were seven years old at the time. You went with your dad and your and your older brother. Um, seven is very young. We've had a lot of people who come on this podcast whose first games have been when they've been six and seven and eight. My, my mm. first game was I was 11. And even my memories of that are of the actual football itself are pretty vague. Yeah. So I'm guessing, I mean, can you remember anything in the game at all? What does anything stand out? Especially not, that, not, but not night, particularly. Yeah. Not, not, not particularly. I've just realized we're recording this on the 1st of February. So that means it was oh, cool. 47 years ago. Yesterday. Yes, indeed. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't remember particularly that, uh, you know, I couldn't tell you that Eddie Flood had a particularly great <laughs> game that day or that Dickie Johnson made a brilliant save after, after 20 minutes. But, but what I do remember is kind of broader than that. You know, um, I, I, I very, well, I would have gone with, I did go with my dad and my brother, who's two years older than me for a start off. Um, and dad wasn't really a football fan, but we were brought up in a family that was obsessed by sport. Uh, both mum and dad are from Yorkshire. So they tend to be more cricket and rugby league, to be honest, than football. But um, his work had taken him to, to Merseyside and on the Wirral and Tranmere was literally down the road. You could walk there in no time. So um, it was only natural that we would go there. And I, I what I do remember is, um, and I think, Bob, you know, no one has summed this up better than Bobby Robson with that famous quote, I think about, you know, what it must be like for a kid walking up and walking out onto the Gallagher yes, for the first yeah, time yeah, and yeah. seeing St. James's Park sort of spread in front of him. Well, it, you know, Prenton Park is no St. James's Park, you know, let's be honest, but, but I do, I feel I remember um, the smell of it, you know, the frying onions and the bovril uh, and the deep heat smell coming through from the dressing rooms. We sat in the main stand and um, that's where we always used to go, kind of right above the dressing rooms. And you could, and I guess you still can because the stand hasn't really changed. You could smell the dressing rooms from, from our seats. So really? it's that wow. kind of embrication stuff, yeah. you know, sort of deep heat coming through the yeah. floor. So you can smell that. Cigarette smoke, which, you know, may or may not have been coming from the dressing room in 1975. Perhaps it was, <laughs> you know. Frying <laughs> yeah. um, onions, bovril, swearing, singing, um, what seemed like a vast crowd, you know, but actually probably was only a couple of thousand or three thousand, whatever they were getting in those days, would have been two or three thousand, I'm sure. Um, and, um, you know, my, my dad would never, ever, ever have, I don't think I've, he's still alive, I don't think I've ever heard him swear, you know. So, so at the age of seven, probably I was sitting in a stand with, hearing sort of swearing for yeah. the first time you know the only singing i'd experienced was probably sort of cross-legged on the floor at school with a primary school teacher you know and here's you know dockers and whatever you know big burly birkenhead men singing you know mm. um or maybe that's just all my imagination but but you know when you know how you kind of think sometimes, did I actually did I actually remember that, or have I just seen some old cine film? You know, mm. I, I'm not sure, but I feel that I remember all that. But what I do know 
is that um, is that Steve Koppel was in the was in the Tranmere team, and um, you know, for those of us um, uh, who who remember Steve Koppel, he went on to play for Manchester United in England and very successfully manage Crystal Palace. So Steve Koppel became my first sort of footballing hero. And I know you're a Liverpool fan, Sachin. Well, well, Ron Yates was the yeah. was the manager, mm. and we we discussed this in email because I've still got the program to the game, and I read his program notes um, probably for the first time in 47 years. And he's talking about the fact that Bill Shankly was going mm. to a lot of Tranmere games at the time. So if you think about it, it's January 75. It's literally about seven months after he'd resigned from Liverpool, and my understanding of that period of the history of Liverpool is that Shankly then once the football season got underway and Bob Paisley had taken over you know he desperately missed it and used to turn up at Melwood and and you know again I may be wrong about this but I but I think I've read somewhere that somebody had to say to him kind of like Bill you can't come you know it's very awkward for it's absolutely true I mean yeah I think he basically yeah he resigned after the 74 cup final Newcastle and then um or that was his last game in charge and then he basically immediately regretted it and just kept turning Mm. up at Melwood sort of like David Brent in the Christmas special of the office (laughs) and I don't know whether it was Bob Paisley himself or as you say a member of his staff just said you have you have you can't keep doing this because you're undermining undercutting Bob yeah and yeah. yeah, I was going to ask you about it. You were very kind enough to send me a, a photograph of the programme from, from that Grimsby game in 75. 6p it costs, which is yes. a, lo- <laughs> a lovely amount for a programme, given they cost about £3.50 now. Yeah. Um, and I was going to ask you, yeah, I think, yeah, Bill, Bill Shang was obviously turning up at, was turning up at Tranmere. Ron Yates was obviously um, his former sort of legendary captain. At Liverpool, That's right, yes. Now manager yeah. at Tranmere. And yeah. doing a bit of research, it sounds like Bill was, was working as kind of unofficial consultant for, mm. for Ron. Um, and yeah, I, I get I get that sense. Probably he's been told politely at Liverpool stop turning up at Melwood, and he's put, this is probably his alternative. Tranmere's is yeah, yeah, fix, which is kind of nice in a way. I think yes, yes, and you get the impression reading those program notes that it's kind of some, you know it's something quite recent. You know that Ron mm-hmm. Yates, who who as you say was sort of signed signed by Shankly, and I think there's some famous quote of Shankly sort of saying it took him half an hour to walk yeah. around Ron Yates. He was so massive in yeah, a yeah. Um, in a in a good way. Um, not in a Neil Ruddock way, in a good way. Um, <laughs> Lovely Nancy's <and>, reference. <laughs> um, and, um, and yeah, in the programme notes, I think they played away at Gillingham or Colchester or somewhere. And, you know, Ron Yates is saying like, you know, Bill Shankly travelled on the team bus. So, yes, I get the impression that he was a kind of unofficial um, ear for Ron Yates to, mm-hmm. to, to sort of get advice from. And um, a little bit of sort of, you know, nice Merseyside football history I suppose but but Ron Yates I think like a lot of managers Tranmere managers at that time was spectacularly unsuccessful <laughs> and um and they basically bobbed around what was then divisions three and four um through most of my formative fan years really yeah well we'll come on to the football element uh shortly just I just I do want to talk about Prenton Park itself actually because mm. it's um it's a ground that's gone through various changes during the years. Uh, I think most significantly in the mid-90s when three new all-seater stands were created, the Borough Road stand, the, cow, the cow shed, and the new cop. Yeah. So it fell in line with the, uh, with the Taylor report. Um, it's a stadium I've never been to myself. I'm looking from the outside in. It appears to be one that, despite the changes, has, um, has I'll put this as politely as I can, mm. retained an old-school feel. Um, is that fair? I know you don't go there, obviously, regularly as you'd like to yeah. these days. but uh, it's, it's, I mean, to be honest, I would say for, uh, you know, for a League 2 ground, it's, it's 
one of the better ones, you mm. know? I mean, clearly there are one or two clubs who've kind of fallen from grace with, you know, brand spanking new stadiums. But um, the main stand is, is as it has been for as long as I remember. I think that was built in the early 70s. As you say, the other three were, were put up in the 90s. The capacity is around about 14,000, I think. Um, I think they had nearly 11,000 for Forest Green at the weekend, which is fantastic. Um, so, um, you know, it's, 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 frankly, I think it's not out of place in League Two. It's perfectly decent for League One. Um, it would it would be one of the less imposing grounds in the championship, I suppose. Um, my memory of it, I mean, you talk about the cowsheds, which is a sort of great name, you know, and they probably <laughs> they probably literally were, I guess, at yeah. one time, you know. Um, and that's where once once I'd kind of got to the stage where I wasn't going with my dad and my brother, and I was old enough to kind of go with mates, you know, we always used to stand behind the goal on the cowsheds. And, um, you know, there's some great stories. I wasn't at this game, but, but, but from the cowshed stand behind the goal is a great story of, uh, of an old guy coming out and hitting the opposition goalkeeper across the backside with his walking stick <laughs> <laughs> on one occasion because he was time wasting, you know? Um, so, um, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an old school ground, but I have to say, and we'll probably talk about them later, is that the, the owners of Tranmere now, Mark Palios and, and, and Nicola Palios, um, who, who, you know, I cannot speak highly enough of mm. them. Um, when Tranmere were relegated out of League Two, you know, there are all kinds of financial implications for dropping out of the Football League, including sort of, you know, money for your academy and all kinds of things. Mm. And frankly, then, Prenton Park was looking really tired, you know, nothing had really been done for a long time. And, you know, completely counterintuitively, they decided um, that actually the thing to do was to invest in the stadium because they needed it to be a venue. They needed it to be more than just to sort of, you know, bring in some money on match day. And a lot of people have tried that over things. You know, it's not a hugely original thought, but but when you go out of League Two to decide that that's the moment you're going to upgrade all your corporate yeah. facilities um, and basically tidy the place up and make it look like it's somewhere that you might want to go um, was a really brave thing to do. And I think they've been massively rewarded and also a sign because, you know, people will say, well, the Prenton Park pitch has been terrible for a long time. And a couple of years ago, you may remember, um, Tranmere played Manchester United in the FA Cup. Yes, Phil Jones, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Phil Jones last yeah. but one match, he actually scored a belter yeah, from about yeah. 30 yards out. I remember that now, and yeah. the game was only just played. I mean, the pitch was terrible for years. And um, during the first lockdown, when nobody really knew when or if football was coming back, and that bit Tranmere hard because they were ultimately relegated out of League One by a fraction of points per game. But during that lockdown, um, they managed to raise and spend about £200,000 on completely digging out the existing pitch, relaying all the drainage, you know, going down. This hasn't been done for 50 years, you know. And um, so now Prenton Park has a state-of-the-art properly drained pitch. Mm. Um, so every time there are big questions to be answered, I think, of the way that the Palios is run the club and manage the club and adversity hits um, them or football collectively, they've stepped up to the plate and been massively brave and they deserve an enormous amount of credit for it. Yeah, no, so I was going to ask you about later, but yeah, we should say yeah, Mark Palios and his wife Nicola, isn't it? They took over the club in 2014 yeah. and 
they've run it yeah from outside looking in fantastically well certainly particularly during covid the covid period where you know it's been very tough it's been tough for a lot of lower mm. league clubs they've they've sort of they've their bond with the local community seems to have got stronger and their management club seems to have yeah. got smarter as well, which I think is great. Yeah. And Mark Palios, um, obviously his love for Chandra is undisputed. He's a, a, I think a Boyhood fan like yourself, but he also played for the club. And he, he, he in that era with, uh, with Steve yeah. Coppel. He, he, watched. Yeah. he, I'm pretty certain, would have been in the team when Tranmere played Grimsby yeah, yeah. In, in January 1975. He was very much of that, of that era. Um and um, yeah, Mark Palios, you know, had a sort of, you know, journeyman kind of football career, but he was uh, a smart guy who got involved in the world of finance and um, um, ended up, you know, f- infamously involved at the FA in some respects. Yes. Um, in that he was involved in the uh, Faria Alam hijinks. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, has emerged from that as, as you know, a really respected owner um, of Tramley, I think respected, mm. very much respected within the world of football and, yeah. you know, absolutely respected by anyone who has any feeling for Tramley. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I've been uh, from afar, yeah, full of admiration for what, what he's done for the club, I said, especially during during the COVID period. Mm. Um, going back to on-pitch matters then, so Tranmere sadly got relegated at the end of the 74-75 season, which is that first season you're watching them, finished 22nd. Um, and in the 80s, Going into the 80s, a tough decade for Tranmere as well. Basically spent the whole of that decade in the fourth division. Some big mm. financial troubles. I think you had to play quite a number of friendlies in order to clear your debt. Yes, yeah. £1,000 yeah. loan from Wirral Council, which actually in quite a nice way led to quite a nice sort of relationship with the local council and Wirral became sort of a long-time sponsor on the shirt. But well, that's, right. that was right. That's part yeah. of that deal, you know. So through Tranmere's yeah. good times... <laughs> Uh, and there were good times, you know, they always had Wirral County Wirral, Council yeah. on the front of the shirts as part of that loan deal, which was fabulous for, for, for you know, the um, fabulous for the council in the area because Tranmere were genuinely in the public eye on quite, quite a few occasions at that time. Yeah. I mean, you're a teenager then, in, or becoming a teenager yeah. in the 80s. Is that, I mean, that's, that's obviously a really special time for any football fan. I think it's a time most fans sort of well and truly fall in love with their club. But you're watching a fourth division side going through financial trouble. Does that take a bit of the sheen off? Are you going regularly at this time as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, we used to go, we used to go a lot. Um, I mean, there was, there was an American owner called Bruce Osterman who was, you know, disastrous really. Um, Frank Worthington was briefly a player manager. Brian Hamilton was briefly a player manager. Brian Hamilton did okay. Frank Worthington didn't. Um, but really, you can't talk about Tranmere at that era when they finally fell upon as a manager, Johnny King. Mm. And, um, you know, Johnny King has his statue outside Prentice yeah. Park now. And, um, and rightly so, because um, he basically sort of uh, was, you know, a, a a great guy. And when I, when I talk about that time, when I was at university doing Tranmere, I was lucky enough that one of the things I was able to do was to go over to their, their then Bally road training ground in Birkenhead and sort of sit in on his press conferences. And, and that was my first experience of sitting in on a footballer's press conference and, and, you know, just in a very small way, getting to know a manager a little bit. Um, And, and he, Johnny King and Tranmere were the, absolute perfect fit you yeah. know and and much as much as you know Tramia fans love their current manager Mickey Mellon you know um in terms of a, a, of kind of legendary status you know Johnny King uh is is head and shoulders above everybody else 
Yeah, we should say, I was going to come on to me, a huge figure in Tranmere's history. So he managed a club in two different spells mm. between 1975 and 1980. And then yeah. I think the real key period that you're referring to is between 87 and 1996. And in that period, yes. you, got, you, you got you promoted back to the old third division in 1989, then to the old second division in 1991. Under him, you also played at Wembley for the first time in a Football League centenary tournament. Yes. And you won, uh, you won a trophy there via uh, victory over Bristol Rovers in the 1990 Leyland Daff trophy final. Jimmy yes. Steele getting the winning goal. That's right. Um, and in that period as well, you've got two bona fide legends for the club who we will come on to later when we talk about your all-time Tranmere 11. Uh, played for Tranmere during that time. In Muir, who's Tranmere's all-time record goal scorer, mm. with 142 goals uh, in 314 games. And uh, the winger, Johnny Morrissey as well. Mm. So yeah, it just must be incredibly exciting time. And they say jo- John uh, Johnny King's got a statue outside the ground. He's got a stand named after him as well. I mean, he has, yeah, yeah, yeah. Golden I mean, in Chinese history, I'm guessing. Yes, and and um, you know they began basically. You know they they survived. There was a famous game when they survived. Um, being they survived on the last day, last home game of the season, dropping out of the football league, and it was kind of upwards, not spectacularly, but slowly upwards from there. And there were some really notable. Uh, cup scalps before the later second Johnny King era. You know, there were, there was um, knocking Middlesbrough who were then, I think, a, a, I think they were a top flight side, knocked Middlesbrough out of the league cup mm. at Brenton park um, in, in the sort of um, in probably mid eighties. Um, and it, it felt that, um, you know, they were slowly but surely moving upwards. And then in that second Johnny King spell, it suddenly became a sort of, you know, fantastic and quite quite rapid rise, possibly too rapid, you could argue, because they were for two or three years on the brink of getting into the Premier League. Um, but, um, and possibly the infrastructure of the club wasn't really ready for that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, Johnny Morrissey is, is a guy, his dad had played for Everton, John Morrissey, winger, Johnny Morrissey, his son, was was a winger, um, terrific player. Ronnie Moore was another name that people might know who started out actually as a centre-half in the 70s and, and was moved uh, up front to go and play up front. And I remember one year, I think probably about 76, 77, when Ronnie Moore probably scored like high 30s goals. And... Um, it was a brilliant. It was a brilliant sort of end to the season as he and Dixie McNeil were kind of head to head to finish as the football league's top scorer. And I'm pretty certain in the end, Dixie McNeil, who played for Wrexham, pipped him. And Dixie McNeil might have got about 46, and and Ronnie Moore about 45. You know, really big numbers. Um, so that was the time. Yeah, you're right, because it's because it was it was the time, I suppose, when I stopped going with dad. So you're kind of getting this kind of independence, beginning to go with your mates, sneaking a drink at halftime and, you know, all that kind of rites of passage stuff, I suppose, as a as a teenager, when when the world begins to open up for you. Yeah, and I believe you moved to London, is that right, in 1990, because you got a job on Capital Radio. So on one hand, I guess you're getting quite detached from going regularly to Tranmere, but on the other 
they're going through this period of going to get into Wembley quite a lot, which obviously yes. you can then get to quite easily. So, sort yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. Take well, away I, with I, one and give with the other, I guess. I was, I was, yeah, I was lucky enough. I mean, I, I, I went to most, I think, probably all the Wembley finals actually, um, Leyland Daff and um, promotion finals. The famous, the best of all, but sort of best day of all time, virtually, was um, beating Bolton in the playoff final when Chris Malkin um, scored the goal. And um, that was an absolutely fabulous occasion. Um, so, yes, I moved to London, not because I had a job with Capital Radio. I didn't actually oh, okay. move to yeah. London. I just wanted to move to London. I graduated. I was determined to move to London and um, was kind of applying for anything in the Media Guardian. You know, it was in mm. those days, basically, by the Media Guardian on yeah, a Monday yeah. and just send your CV to anything. Well, that's how I got my job at the Guardian. You know? yeah, there's an uh, ad in the Media Guardian for a job yeah. at the Guardian. Slightly yes. <laughs> yeah, well... Well, I ended up working for a little um, publishing company in, in, in Clapham uh, and sort of bizarrely, I didn't even actually know what I was going to be doing until I got there. And it turned out I was selling ad space, which, um, which was, you know, I didn't particularly enjoy. It was a night, there was a nice group of people, but I managed, they were producing this, this company, they were producing um, a student newspaper that they were distributing around campuses at universities around the country and it was basically written and produced by students and I managed in the six months that I was there to kind of get myself off sales onto editorial um, basically off the back of I'd met a guy in a pub who was the British stunt kite champion <laughs> and I'd met him in a pub at South Clapham where I was living at the time. And you meet the best people in pubs don't you? Yeah and I just sort of <laughs> I just sort of said, I said, you know, we do this magazine, uh, this newspaper. I could probably write an article about you and kind of led him to believe I was on the editorial side, which I wasn't. And um, anyway, I wrote the article and kind of submitted it and they printed it. And I managed to get myself onto the editorial side. And, and at simultaneously, luckily for me, a guy who I'd been at school with, who is now the editor of Liverpool's Matchday programme, David Cottrell, um, Dave was one of the writers on brilliant football magazine, 90 Minutes at yes, the time, which was well. fantastic. It was, it was great. And, and um, so the staff at 90 Minutes was Paul Hawksby, Dan Goldstein, mm. um, Dave Cottrell, one or two others. He, he got me onto, they used to do this predictions league thing, and he got me onto what they call the fool's panel. So I used to do a little sort of like 75 word prediction of scores and stuff. So this was all kind of cutting my teeth in, in mm. terms of being able to write some stuff. Um, unfortunately, after about six months, the publishing company I was working for went bust, um, by which time I'd submitted a tape and a CV to Capital Radio Um and luckily, uh, in my final year at Liverpool, I'd applied for a BBC News journalism trainee scheme, postgraduate scheme. And I'd got as far as the final interviews in London. I'd gone through various kind of local, regional kind of hurdles to get over. And luckily for me, when I sent it off the capital, a, a really unbelievably talented guy who was the senior sports producer at Capital Radio called Pete Simmons. My CV ended up in front of him. Fortunately, he knew how I had no idea how difficult that BBC postgrad team was. And he's, he invited me in to do a voice test and just chat and have a, have a cup of tea. And, um, and he said to me, well, you know, you probably got down to about the last 30 from a pool of about, you know, thousands, five, mm. four or 5,000, you know, I had no idea. I knew I'd gone through about four stages before I finally kind of failed. Um, 
but he took that as being a feather in my cap and and sort of said listen if you want to come in I can't, i'm not going to pay you but if you want to come in on a saturday and kind of learn how things work then you know you'd be very welcome and and that's what i did uh sort of unpaid for quite a few months just going in on a saturday and learning how stuff worked um which is still probably the best way to get into the business unfortunately mm. you know i i'm i'm very dubious about the whole the whole idea of uh, sorry that's an email coming in i'm very <laughs> dubious about the whole idea of um of internships unpaid internships really but um you know because it seems to kind of extend the hand of um opportunity to those who are privileged yeah. <laughs> enough to be able to work without being paid which which goes against a lot of principles but you know unfortunately it is still probably something that a lot of people have to do to try and get into the media and um and and anyway that's 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 what i did at that stage in late 1990 early 91 yeah, no, you absolutely. We've gone right. a long way from Tramia there. I don't know how I was that gonna, We have, yeah. We're talking, oh, well, it's always interesting to hear about your career, Steve. So don't worry about that at all. But now on the internship thing, absolutely spot on as well. It's one of the sort of slightly heartbreaking thing that Guardian pre-COVID because we're not doing it at the moment, but we'd get sort of work experience applications from people, and often we get people from the north saying, "Yeah, I'd love to come and do two weeks at the Guardian, but I can't." afford to stay anywhere does the guardian pay for accommodation and we say yeah we don't and then they can't come but yet somebody lives in london can just pop down on the tube and it feels completely unfair and imbalanced and yeah it does yes it does um yeah getting back to tranmere then so yeah johnny king obviously legendary figure for for tranmere and we should say played for the team for the club as well in the 60s yeah died in in march 2016 at the age of 77 um as i said he's got statue outside the ground you did say that you 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 had the the privilege and honour, I guess, of, of meeting him and, and, and covering sort of press conferences with him. What, what type of man was he? Was he quite an outgoing guy? Yes, he was, he was full of stories and he, he, he was very whimsical really in, in, um, in, uh, in many ways. And um, the Southern branch of the Tramia Rovers supporters club of which I'm a member um, has, has the moniker, the deadly submarine, which is a, which is a Johnny King quote and, um, you know, he used to say stuff like uh, Kenny Dalglish would have been the Liverpool manager at the time and Howard Kendall at Everton, you know, yeah. a supremely success. They were arguably the two best sides in Europe were cheek by yeah. jowl on the other side of the River Mersey. And, uh, and he'd kind of say like, you know, they've got their ocean liners with their swimming pools and their helipads and their whatever, whatever, whatever. But we're the deadly submarine. <laughs> excellent line. coming coming from underneath to scupper yeah. them you know um and um yeah he was he was he was a great he, fantastic guy such a quotable guy you know yeah. a brilliant guy for for the media there were very few media there of course in those days but um yeah. a, a fantastic guy for the media Lots on offer off the pitch and plenty to savour on it too when John King was in charge. He had two spells as Tranmere boss and is the fan's hero. John King, um, best character ever to do with Tranmere Rose, I think. Um, best manager we've ever had. Tremendous fella, really. I you know, um, was at the club for what, 10 years as a manager and uh, took the club from oblivion to the premiership, you know, tremendous. So what was the secret of the team's success in this period? Well, it seems to stem from the manager himself. And I felt as though I was a leader, you know, and, uh, and I think it was, it's borne out. I can say these things now that I've virtually finished being a, a manager, uh, that I like to lead from the front and I like to make the decisions. 
And I like to win games, and I don't like to be beaten. And Shankly was a great friend of mine, you know. Mm. Bill, oh, Mr. Shankly, came over and he he uh, had a look at us and see, you know, he watched me coaching. And and I thought I'd look back because many uh, people have said, wasn't that rather daunting to have Shankly standing behind the post watching it? And uh, I said, you know, honestly, I felt as always on the stage giving a song or something, you know. No, I enjoyed it every minute, and, and he seemed to take a liking to me, and he got me the Sheffield Wednesday job, which I turned down, and I went back to his house, and he said, have you got the job, son? I said, aye. I said, but I've turned it down. He says, Jesus Christ, it might be like a rocket that's bound for the moon, and nobody to fly it. And I, I, I said, well, I, I, there's no money. Uh, they're not going to give me any money at Sheffield. At Tramere, I think I can get promotion. Anyway, he said, OK, and away I went. And we went up with Tramere and we started getting bumped. We came from out of uh, nothing, relegation. And we went up in the leagues and finished in the first division. And then, as most people talk proudly on the Whittle, is the fact we're in three playoffs mm. to go into the Premiership. I think Tramere have always been to the Everton and Liverpools as uh, a lower division team. And that was another big plus for me. I wanted to make them the third, the real third team, the Premiership, Tranmere Rovers. And I still think it's possible with the right people at the top. He had the vision or someone at the club, and he obviously would have been one of those involved in the decision um, to make what much of, must have been a massive outlay. And it was a game-changing outlay, really, for Tranmere to sign John Aldridge from Real Sociedad. Uh, for a quarter of a million pounds um, when John Aldridge would have been probably in his early 30s and people would have thought, well, you know, he's uh, scored a lot of goals at Oxford and um, local lad, obviously, Liverpool, mm. um, scored a lot of goals at, uh, at Oxford United and had that great couple of seasons, three seasons at Liverpool. And then when Rush came back to Anfield, it kind of didn't quite gel as people probably might have wanted it to. And off he went to Real Sociedad, did brilliantly there. Um, well, Tranmere signed him for a quarter of a million pounds, aged 31 or two, whatever it was. Who could have believed that he would have played on for about another seven seasons and scored about 200 goals for yeah. the club or something? You know, it was, it was a stroke of absolute genius to bring him there. And of course, off the back of having Aldridge there, then other players came, you know, yeah. and um, some of whom appear in my all-time 11, you know. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was um, in many ways, it was signing Aldridge. Can I just tell you a John Aldridge story? Of course. To yeah, well, we're well, going to talk, we're going to come on and talk about him specifically because of three absolutely iconic oh, okay. games that took place. Really. But no, no, please start off with well, Aldridge's well, story. I'd love well, to hear it. Well, years later when I was, when um, I, I do less for Football Focus now, but at the time, um Football Focus, well, I don't know how many years ago it was, um, had, a, had a thread called uh, Cult Heroes. And they would ask supporters of the club to vote for their all-time cult hero. And, um, you know, I guess, you know, a, a living one, preferably, because the idea was to go and interview them. Ah, okay. And um, so John Aldridge was voted as Tranmere's all-time cult hero. So he had been sacked by the chairman at the time of Tranmere, a woman called Lorraine Rogers. And Lorraine had sacked him. And um, anyway, I rang him and I said, would you do this? Um, it's got to be done at Prenton Park. You know, we've got to go to the ground. 
And uh, he was reluctant, really, because he mm. hadn't been back since he'd been sacked. So I, so he was kind of like, no, you know, I don't want to see Lorraine, if I'm honest, you know, don't really want to go there and see her. So I said, well, what if I could try and swing it that, you know, she wasn't there and, you know, you won't meet her. And he was like, yeah, well, okay. So I sort of explained the situation to, uh, to the club and, and was told like, oh no, we'll sort it. We'll do it. So anyway, it was all set up in place. So it was John Aldridge coming back to Prenton Park for the first time since he'd been sacked. So I met him in the car park. We walked into reception and the receptionist said, oh, John, love, great to see you. I'll ring Lorraine and let her know you're here. Fantastic. <laughs> was she there? Yeah. <laughs> oh my yeah. God, did she come down? Yes, she did. She came down. Oh, and, that's um, going to be awkward. It was a little bit, yeah. Um, but, um, but you know, he was he was a perfect gentleman about it and sort of, you know, uh, and it all it all went OK, but it might not have done. No, that's fantastic. <laughs> that's actually really. Well, let's talk about the John Aldridge era. Um, it's kind of the era where, you know, growing up as a football fan. So in the 90s and then into the noughties, I sort of know Tranmere best for myself. Yeah. Um, so he, as you said, as I said, you, you laid it out brilliantly there. So he succeeded John King as uh, sorry. John King signed him as a player in 1991 yes. from Rail Dad. He then succeeded John King as player manager in 1996. Mm. And he was manager until... Uh, the spring of 2001, where, as you say, he was he was he was sacked as sacked as manager, and during his period as manager, he, I should say, he continued playing until 1999, and then he sort of, for the last two years of his managerial period was just solely a manager. He wasn't playing anymore, mm. and in that period, the John Aldridge period as as p- manager and player manager, there are three absolutely iconic results, mm. and they all come in a 12 month period. So it starts off in February 2000 when you play Leicester. City in the Worthington Cup final. It's the first time Tranmere have ever reached a major final. Sadly, we lose um, 2-1. David Kelly scoring in between two goals from Matt Elliott. Yeah. In, uh, Clint Hill sent off. Clint Hill was sent off in the final. Indeed. Do you remember well, Clint Hill sent off? I do, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, that's another notable aspect from that game. Um, January 2001 then, 3-0 victory over Everton at, at Goodison Park in the fourth round of the, the FA Cup. John Yates scores twice. Jason Kumas gets the other. Uh, it happened on the 27th of January 2001 and every 27th of January mm. since then has been known as St Yates Day to celebrate right. that win. Yeah. And then in February 2001, so sort of 12 months on from the Worthington Cup final, a 4-3 victory over Southampton at Prenton Park in the fifth round of the FA Cup. The same FA Cup run, we should say, is that started off with the Everton win. Yeah. Um, he had been 3-0 down at half time and came back to win 4-3. Paul Rydak got a hat-trick and then Stuart Barlow on as a sub getting the winner. Mm. three um yeah just three sort of iconic results yeah just love for you to talk about I was, and i know the southampton game were you, am i right in saying you come you were commentating yes yes one? yes i was i was at two of those three games i was at the league cup final um as the fan and it was the first time it meant a lot really it was the first time in many years that i'd been to a game with my dad because um as I said earlier, you know, he's not, he's not intrinsically a big football fan, really. Yeah. Um, but obviously, Tranmere reaching the League Cup final was something special. And um, anyway, so they travelled uh, down from Merseyside for stay for a few days, mum and dad. And um, dad and I went off to Wembley and did something that we probably hadn't done for 20 years, which was go to a football game together, you know. That's lovely, yeah. And yeah, they lost... Um, which wasn't unexpected, you know, against against Leicester. But they put up a they put up a real fight. David Kelly scored at our end of the our end of Wembley, the the opposite end to the 
oh, it was the old Wembley, so it was not the tunnel end, the other end, whatever they call that. Um, and um, it was a it was a great day. I've only been to a football game once with my dad since then, um, which was about eight years later when uh, Lorraine Rogers, who I was talking about earlier, who sacked Don Aldridge, she kindly put a couple of tickets for me and dad um, for a game against Colchester uh, in the director's box. So we were up in the director's box. They lost 4-3 to Colchester, who I think were bottom of the table at the time. And anyway, so afterwards, I'm kind of like, Lorraine, thanks ever so much. You know, she, uh, you know, like everyone connected to a club after you lose a game, they're sort of fed up. And um, she wasn't in the mood for a chat. So I was just like, thank you very much. Really kind to put the tickets down. My dad, who's a Yorkshireman, kind of said, uh, said, oh, you know, thank you very much. Very interesting. Um, but if you can't <laughs> beat Colchester, who can you beat? <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> which is very dad um, <laughs> yeah um but Wembley was magical the, the the Everton game Steve Yates two goals Jason Kumas with an absolutely brilliant goal three nil against Everton at Goodison I wasn't there but it was a significant day for me because it was actually I think I'm right in saying my first day I was working for five live at the time yeah. and it was the first day that I worked for match of the day Oh wow! It was a, a lot of FA Cup days, a lot of FA Cup games on that. Yeah, day. that would have been yeah. fourth, fourth round of the FA Cup, and obviously on an FA Cup Saturday, you don't get a commentary on every single game. Some no. will be commentary, some will be reportage. So I was in there as a kind of floating reporter who would be allocated a a game on which to write a script and voiceover. You know. Um, so I spent that afternoon sitting in the match of the day production office for the first time, able to watch the pictures as they came in from Everton, uh, as Tramia beat them three nil. Um, Tony Garbo was the commentator. So that was one of the games that they already had commentary on. Mm. Can't remember which game I ended up doing a little voiceover on. I can't remember, but, um, so that's, that was, you know, coincidentally a significant career day as well as a sort of, you know, fantastic day in the history yeah. of Tranmere. Um, and the third one, the Southampton game, I commentated on 4-5 Live uh, with David Oates, who, um, who unfortunately passed away uh, not long after the London Olympics, David, who was um, a terrific sports commentator for 5 Live, rugby league and football mainly. And um, so Dave, David and I were commentating on that game in the days when five live used to have two commentators and um so at halftime they're three nil down the message comes through from uh five lives base then in london saying listen you know this this is gone we're going to change game we're going to do second half from whatever it was you know somewhere yeah. else coventry versus bradford or whatever it was <laughs> and um you know, not an unreasonable decision to, to <laughs> skip the game where, yeah. you know, the Premier League team are 3-0 up against a, a lower division side. So so they said it's kind of like, one, if you stay, because we're going to need some post-match interviews and updates and stuff. But the other one, to be honest, you might as well go. Wow. Well, I was, I was staying at my mum and dad's, which yeah. you can walk to in 10 minutes <laughs> from Prenton Park. David lived in Ealing. So I said, oh, God, you go, mate. You know, so he's, he's gone, yeah, great. So, um, so he's got in his car and disappeared. And of course, it's then it's 3-1, it's 3-2. They come back. Paul Rideout scored a hat-trick for Tranmere. They win 4-3. Um, it went absolutely 
bananas because Five Live were like, you know, we need John Aldridge live into breakfast tomorrow morning, you know. Um, so, so I had to commentate, do all these record loads of reports. It was like going to be the main story of the, of, on the sports bulletins the following day, they wanted the player, they wanted Paul Ride out live. They wanted John Aldridge live. I'm running around like a blue ass fly trying to set all these things up, you know, meanwhile, Oatsy's kind of halfway home to Ealing <laughs> by this time. Um, and, um, but it was, it was unbelievable night. Incredible. You could not possibly have seen it coming. Um, yeah. from three nil down um, that they could possibly come back and win that game. But it was, it was just an absolute classic of its kind FA cup replay. Um, and, and one of the most amazing games you could ever hope to commentate on. Richard Hines making a very long and late run in. Got through towards Parkinson. Well, they got one. Now Paul Jones went off saying he's looking at the keep out, hand up. I don't think he can give it. I think the ball is struck beautifully from Andy Parkinson. Clean as a whistle. How on earth he gets through the forest of legs in front of him? I'm not sure. Look at all the players in front of him. It's not offside. Not from there. They're coming out late. Nothing affects the play from where I'm stood. A lovely strike. Parkinson. They are level and Paul Rideout has got a hat-trick. Well, throws the books, everyone. This is the FA Cup story of the season. Absolutely unbelievable. And I mean unbelievable. This is a game that's over. Over at half-time. It is now in the balance with 10 minutes remaining. What a cup story this is. They go to sleep, Southampton, no doubt about that. Very lively football and what a cross that is from Andy Parkinson. Keeper doesn't know whether they come, whether they stay. Right out does, he goes straight for it. My God, what a night of cup football we've got here at Prenton Park. Let's ride out again. Then you score. My 
My goodness, John. He's had some results, but can they see this out? Can they win this match? That's good enough, Mark. I tell you, that's good enough. We're 10 seconds away, and we're not. We're into added time on stoppage time. This must be the last attack, if there is going to be one, or the last kick of the match. It must be over. We'll play Liverpool in the quarter-finals of the FA Cup after the most dramatic of comebacks. The FA Cup story of the season. Stuart Barlow won it. Paul Ryder rescued it with a hat-trick after his team were three goals down at half-time and had hardly had a kick of the ball in the first 45 minutes. It is the most tremendous of turnarounds. Was the second half broadcast then? Because obviously you said David Oates could go, and they at some point, at some point, they came back to it. Yes, okay. because they because their their deal with the FA at the time, and it may still be the case that it is now. I'm not sure to be honest with you. Was that was that you know they could they could change game if they wanted, you know. Mm. So um, so um, they would have gone away, and I my, I I can't remember if I'm honest with you, but my guess is that when it went three two. They might have gone, you know, we'd better, we'd better go back to this yeah. game. So I uh, probably 3-3 three, three and 4-3 were, were live on 5 Live. Yeah. I can't honestly remember. I remember the I game. I would have thought so. Yeah, I remember the game being on telly because I remember watching. I think I did the same as kind of, well, like your producer, like sort of sort of switched off at half time, And then yeah. you sort of, there was no social media at the time, but sort of somehow knowing that Tranmere on the way back and sort of flicking the TV back. And I definitely remember seeing Stuart Barlow's goal for sure. I mean, yeah. that's, that's got to be an incredible experience for you, that sort of perfect fusion between personal and professional life um i know it's well, it hard becomes with... it, it becomes genuinely it becomes quite difficult because yes yeah, so i was about do, to say yeah you do have to park the fan bit yeah, yeah. yourself you know um yeah. and and try and do it sort of you know well obviously you do it professionally but you know try and do it um try and do it sort of uh, um dispassionately um whilst hopefully getting across the sense of occasion and excitement of the occasion and, you know, I suppose, you know, everybody loves an underdog. So I suppose that, you know, everybody, all the neutrals, you know, probably would have been hoping that there would be this epic comeback mm. once it went to 3-2 and 3-3. Three, three. Um, but I, but, you know, I still, you know, a certain amount of professional pride makes me hope that I wasn't kind of sitting there going <laughs> like, sort of like, you know, come on, Danny, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. well, I, I wasn't doing that, but um but um, which actually, you know, is, is funny. You've mentioned there was no social media then in this age of social media that, you know, there are all these sort of conspiracy theories about, I'm sure you get this um, though. Everybody knows you're a Liverpool fan, but, but, you know, there's always kind of like, I get this as a commentator. I know other commentators do, um, you know, Oh, it's so, you know, particularly when you do a big game, you know, oh, it's so obvious you're an Arsenal fan and yeah. you hate Spurs, you know, and on the, and on the same Twitter feed, it'll be like, Oh, why do you love Spurs so much and hate Arsenal? You know, uh, uh, and, and this applies more than anything to referees. And I think I have a sort of small, through being a commentator, a kind of small understanding of what it must be like for referees, because basically in that moment, who you support is absolutely immaterial because Paying your mortgage is more important, yeah. you know, yeah. and if you don't do your job well, there's the risk that, you know, somebody is going to haul you up over the coals for it. So I'm a, I firmly believe, obviously I wouldn't actually sort of, you know, endorse saying, well, this, this uh, Leeds United supporting referee should, should referee a Leeds United game. But I actually wouldn't have a problem if they did, because I, I know 
that whoever that referee is will deem that his career is more important than giving Leeds a penalty or a corner or whatever it may be. You know, it's like genuinely, I think I can say that as you are doing the job, you don't really care. You know, it's like you, you, you are just focused. It's, it's hard enough doing the job without sitting there thinking, God, I hope they scored this or, mm. you know, penalty or whatever, you know, and it's only really afterwards that you can sit back and go, wow, that was fantastic. Or alternatively, God, we were awful today, you yeah. know, um, and the fan kicks back in. I think, I think while play is underway, you genuinely just don't think like a fan because you genuinely don't have time. Yeah. And I know that people won't believe me and they won't believe that that would be the case with referees. I can only tell you that I believe it to be the case. Well, I a hundred percent agree with you. Yeah. When I, um, yeah, I've told people this as well myself, but when I cover Liverpool, it is, I'm, and I'm quite glad this happens. In fact, it's, it's vitally it happens. You just go into full professional mode because mm. I'm worried about making sure my Wi-Fi signal, you know, is, is fully operational. Yeah. That I hit deadline that I've got all the facts absolutely correct. And actually I find it easier covering Liverpool when they lose a game than watching it as a fan, because I don't really, all the emotion is, is sort of drains out or not drains out of me, but sort of leaves me. Yeah. Yeah. And I focus purely on making sure I get an accurate report across line. And it's only when I'm on the train home or, or you know, whatever yeah. that I suddenly, Oh, we lost today. And it hits me, but you're absolutely right exactly. in the moment. Yeah. Um, you're just fully focused on doing your job professionally. And in fact, if anything, you go the other way. I, d- I don't know about if your likes with Tranmere, but I'm actually quite hard on Liverpool sometimes because I don't want to come across as a fan with a laptop. So yes. if anything, you're quite tough on your own team rather well, than being soft on them. I, I, I mean, I won't say who it is, but one, one sort of quite high profile former commentator that, that um, I used to work with, I know who he supported and you know he 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 kept it under wraps he wasn't particularly public about it i don't think but i felt that when he was commentating on his team that he was harder on them yeah than he needed to be totally because he that, was yeah. a fan yeah, yeah because yeah no absolutely. that's really fascinating really interesting um Excellent. So, I mean, we'll just kind of come up to the modern day then, really, with Tranmere. So, we said, Aldridge left in in, in March 2001, uh, and it's fair to say subsequent two decades have been turbulent for the club. You touched on it. The low point was undoubtedly being relegated from the Football League after a 94-year stay in 2015. You got back up in 2018 via the National League playoff win over Borenwood at Wembley, and then a second successive uh, promotion via another playoff victory at Wembley, this time over Newport. Yeah. Back relegated League Two uh, again, as you touched on, in quite controversial circumstances in 2020 due to um, COVID. Essentially, it was when it was mm. a, when the League One season was cut short, and it was all decided on a points per game basis. And that's the division Tranmere find themselves in now. But you're sort of in, you're in good shape, really, as you're in you're second in, yeah. in League Two, um, ten points behind Forest Green, ha- having uh, sad. I don't sadly, it's the right way. I guess from your point of view, you lost four nil to Forest yes. Green at the weekend, as you touched on. We should say this is going to come out this podcast probably at the end of the month, around the twentieth of okay. February. So you'll probably play some games in between. But yes. as of recording, as of the first yes. of February, you're second in League Two, ten point yeah. one to one Forest Green, having lost to them four uh, nil at home at the weekend. But you're in. You know, I said. You're doing well off, um, on the pitch and off the pitch. Mark Palios, as we as we touch on, yeah. is running the club in a really sort of sensible, warm-hearted and um, just very sort of smart way, isn't he? So I, I, guess I think warm-hearted is a nice way of saying it, actually. Yeah, I mean, yes, he's a fan, I isn't he? I think it's yeah. a good, so it feels like it's a good time for Tranmere. Obviously, Mickey Mellon, yeah. another former players manager as well. So that must yeah, be really well, nice as well. Well, on the warm-hearted thing, you know, I do, I do you know, social media, because I'm not geographically close to Tranmere and I don't, I don't watch them because 
um, I'm always working, you know, so um, I don't, I don't, I very rarely get the chance to watch Tramia these days. So social media becomes my kind of link with them. And they do do, as do other clubs as well, obviously, but all kinds of things, um, you know, food banks, yeah. um, they provide tickets for um, people who can't afford to go to games, season tickets are, uh, you know, there's a Tramia trust that will raise money in order to buy season tickets which can then be allocated to people who wouldn't otherwise go to the game um they're creating what's going to be a sort of state-of-the-art fan park in the car park next to the stadium um and there's various fundraising projects going on for that which is all brilliant um and mickey mellon is just fantastic mickey mellon is the manager who took tranmere from the conference from the national league into league two and then into league one and um left to go to uh, back to his native Scotland at a season managing in Dundee during which time Tranmere suffered frankly and uh, has come back and there there they are second in league two under his guidance again and and Mickey Mellon gets it I mean he played for the club which is important I think you know I don't know why it's important but you know it mm. feels like he gets the club because having spent some time there and I I sort of will occasionally kind of watch his press conferences on, on social media and stuff. And uh, there's one that sticks in the mind from a couple of, from his first spell at the club. And um, he kind of, you know, there's a little posse of five or six local journalists, I guess. And, and, and Mickey Mellon kind of went um, in this Glaswegian drawl, you know, um, it's great news for the town, isn't it? And, and kind of like, what is Mickey? And he goes, the contract that Camel has got this morning, um, to refit that Navy frigate, whatever it was, you know, oh, it's wow. great. It's great news for the town, isn't it? And you kind of think, wow, this guy's good. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't mean that in a cynical way. I don't mean his PR is good. I mean, he's genuinely good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it just makes you think, you know, just makes you feel absolutely delighted to have him in charge. Yeah. that That's really interesting. Cause I think sometimes the, the, the thing about a, a former player being a great fit for a club because they get the club. I sometimes think it's slightly vague because you're like, what, yes, what does that actually yes, mean? Yes. But that really touches on something very specific. They get not just the club, they get the area, they the get area. what's important yeah. to the people yeah. who will go watch the team. I think that's, yeah. he genuinely gets Tranmere, doesn't he? That's, that's, yes. You know, and, 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 you know, he's from, he's, he's from, you know, I have no idea the background of his family, but, you know, he's from a, a Glaswegian shipbuilding kind of area and shipbuilding is traditionally, you know, the, the, the industry on which Birkenhead was built, you know, Camelhead's shipyard. Um, and um, so, yes. Yeah, so I think, I think there is some worth in that though. I, though I agree with you, you know, you kind of look at clubs sometimes when they're kind of the managerial shortlist and you kind of think, well, he played for the club. So what? But yeah. so I, I, I'm unsure about that, but what I am sure about is that Mickey Mellon, Mickey yeah. Mellon, to quote Boris Johnson, gets it and will fix it. <laughs> <laughs> a very topical reference given events yesterday in, in Parliament. Yeah, I think the classic case of that is Everton, where they're sort of always desperate to get former players to be their manager because they get the club. And I've seen Evertonians themselves say this, like the last people you want to manage Everton are people who get Everton. You want people who don't get Everton in any way to come in because getting Everton is not necessarily a good thing. Um Steve, you've been absolutely brilliant. We'll come on to the last couple of things we always do on this podcast okay. very shortly. Before we do that, I just want to ask you sort of one sort of final question, really. And it's kind of about expectations as a Tranmere fan. I mean, as I said, you're not in Liverpool, but you have got no. the shadow of those two clubs um, hanging over over you, hanging over Tranmere. That does mean, I guess, a bit of a draining of the support base. You'll always be quite limited how many fans you get. 
what are the sort of aspirations for Tranmere fans? As you said, in the, in the 90s under Johnny King, there was a few close calls, I think three or three in the bounds of almost getting mm. into the Premier League. Mm, that's right. Is there realistic hopes of Tranmere ever getting back into the top flight, given the way football is now financially? Well, 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 they've never been in the top flight. Yeah. So getting um, to, yeah, first time, I, yeah. I think, I think to be honest, if Tranmere were in the championship, you'd feel that they were punching above their weight in terms of the infrastructure and the, and the fan base. But, but, you know, having said that, I know it was a weekend in which there was no Premier League football. They did get nearly 11,000 for the home game against Forest Green, a, a massive social media push to get people along. Um, mm. Obviously, the result wasn't what they wanted. But I, I think if Tranmere did find themselves at the top end of League One or in the Championship, then, you know, crowds pushing double figures are not unreasonable. They've done it before. Um, you know, they've had average attendances up eight, 9,000, that, kind of, that kind of range. Um, and, you know, clearly the club has... Um, you know, good owners who I would imagine that think, well, you know, treading water ultimately is not really much of a plan, is it? You know, you no. have to, you have to think that at some point, you know, there, there has to be a plan in place to try to push on and, um, and get up the leagues. Now, you know, Tranmere in the top flight seems like a ridiculous kind of notion at the moment, but my very first season, as a football reporter for Capital Radio, was spent alternate weeks covering Brentford and Fulham, who were at the time managed by Phil Holder and Alan Dix, one in one in the third tier and one in the fourth. You know, so who would have thought that that they would have come as far as they've come? So, you know, you you never know, you never know. Um, but it, it, it seems unlikely that they could ever be um, a, a Premier League club. I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility that they could get into the second tier. Mm. Um, and I very much hope that this time next season, they'll be in the third tier. That would be great. Yeah. Well, they're certainly well, well placed for that. Um, Steve, absolutely excellent. Right. Let's do the last couple of things that we always do on this podcast. So the first thing is we've teased it a couple of times. This is uh, your all time Tranmere 11. Okay. Yeah. So to explain to people who haven't listened to this podcast before, I always ask my guests to pick an all time 11 based on the best 11 players they've seen play for their club during mm. their time supporting that, that club in any yeah. formation they wish. And you've been very kind to pick your all time Tranmere 11. It's in a 4 yeah. 2 3 1 formation. So I'll, I'll go through it and then we can have a little chat about it. So in goal, Eric Nixon. Your back four is Steve Yates, Mark Hughes, John McGreal, and Aaron Cresswell. Um, in midfield, you've got Nick Henry and Mickey Mellon. And then you've got, in your sort of attacking three behind the centre forward, Steve Coppel, Pat Nevin, and Johnny Morrissey. And up front is Ian Muir. So we've mentioned quite a few of those players already in passing. Mm. Yates, Mellon, Koppel, Morrissey and Muir. A couple of players I just wanted to touch on. So the first is Pat Nevin. So he played Mm. for Tranmere between 92 and 97. So the sort of Johnny King era. Um, Really good player. uh, Probably best known for for playing for Scotland. He won 28 caps for them. Also played for Chelsea and Everton. So sort of two questions I've got got for you. How Mm. good was he for Tranmere? And do you get starstruck when you ever work alongside him for the BBC? Which I imagine has happened at least a couple of times. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, (laughs) over the years, I've got to know Pat pretty well, actually, in his time as a pundit. And um, he was absolutely brilliant for Tranmere. Let's start there. He was arguably the best player ever to play for Tranmere. Oh, really? Um, that, that much, um, uh... Well, I mean, that's kind of ridiculous because Dixie Dean played for Tranmere. But, <laughs> but you know, in, 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 you know, what you might loosely term the modern era, depending yeah. on how old you are, 
Um, he, he was absolutely fantastic, playing in a great side, playing in the Aldridge team. Um, he was a perfect foil for for Aldridge, um, and he is he is also a you know a, a really genuinely lovely fella who um, I once persuaded to wear. Um, the, the SWA is the Super White Army, which you know Tranmere fans call themselves, and um, he he wore a Southern Branch uh, SWA brad, badge <laughs> for me once when we were doing something on Football Focus, which Excellent. was which was nice of him. And I know <laughs> I know he does the odd thing at Prenton Park, so he's still sort of you know involved in the club. And you know I can listen to Pat Nevin talking about Johnny King all day and you know if a player as good as pat nevin is is you know waxing lyrical about how brilliant johnny king was then you know that johnny king was a special guy so um pat was fantastic um absolutely brilliant excellent yeah the only other player i wanted to mention just aaron cresswell uh, cresswell mm. i must admit for my sins i didn't know he played for Tranmere, but he did between yeah. 2008 2011 um he's obviously gone on to become a really good player for west ham he's got a few caps yeah. for england was it obvious during that time, yeah. you, would, you would make that make that step yeah. up. Yeah, I mean, I didn't see a lot of him in a Tranmere jersey mm. because you know I had started working yeah. uh, in the media then and was away. But I think if you've got, um, I've seen a lot more of him in a West Ham jersey than I did in a Tranmere mm. jersey. But but I think if a club like Tranmere has uh, on their books or in their history a player who's gone on to play for England, then that doesn't happen no. that often. You know, Steve Coppel did, Aaron Cresswell did. I can't think of too many others. I was quite tempted to put Joe Hart in, but he was only there as a lone, a lone E as a teenager <laughs> from Manchester city. So he didn't, he didn't quite make it, but, um, but yeah, I mean, Aaron, Aaron Cresswell, clearly, you know, um, a player of, of real quality um, to have come out of Tramia Rovers. And, and there've been a few, but um, there are some other names in there. I would have loved to put in. I mean, uh, Kumas, Alan Mann, Steve Vickers, James Norwood, uh, John Aldridge doesn't get even in mm, my team. Jim Steele, yeah. who you mentioned earlier, who was a policeman who played football whilst he was also a policeman, oh, big, really? big wow. centre forward, <laughs> great, terrific, real old fashioned number nine, you know. Yeah. Um, Tony Thomas was another favourite of mine, Chris Malkin, Ian Nolan, Clint Hill, Ryan Taylor. Um, you know, or or any or all of them could have got in the team. You change that team every day, probably, if you if you think about it. But um, but you know, on on this given day, they're my eleven. Yeah, no, excellent, very good, very good. So some, yeah, some standout names even for me as a non-Tranmere fan, sort of Coppel and and yeah, Mickey Mellon. I'm a bit aware of Steve Yates has obviously become an iconic figure for Tranmere yes. for those goals at Goodison as well. Yeah, excellent stuff, Steve. Well, you've been absolutely brilliant. Um going to ask you the final question uh, before I let you get back to your life uh, that I ask on this podcast to all my guests and it is if you could go back in time and change one moment from your time supporting Tranmere up to now it can be absolutely anything it could be a, 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 a result a transfer um, a goal mm. a very specific moment in the match a very personal moment for yourself uh, what would you choose well um, I uh I suppose from a supporter's point of view, because it felt so unfair is that I would have wanted the football league season to have been suspended because of COVID one week later, because Tranmere were the form team. <laughs> they'd, they'd won three games away from home back to back when the, when the season ended and they went down, I think it was three one hundredths of a point or something. They were relegated by it, my firm belief that had they played one more league game, they would have won it and therefore would not have been relegated. 
that's a that's a very good answer yeah that all was not uh, it just seemed not very fair doing it by points per game well, for all involved the line the line had to be drawn somewhere and they were the wrong side of it on the day the line was drawn yeah but i think you know almost almost any other day uh you know one week to whatever you know it, it felt really unfair it felt really unfair and and it all naming no names you know there were clubs who said they couldn't afford to fulfill the season had had it gone on any longer who then bought players yeah. <laughs> a few weeks later you know Absolutely. tell me how that works yeah well, it looks like you're very much on your way back to League One, so that's good news. I Fingers so. crossed. Absolutely. Um, Steve Wilson, you've been absolutely brilliant. Thank you very, very much. Sachin, brilliant. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. It's been an absolute nostalgic treat. <laughs> Glad you enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Thank you.